Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's Ag Report. I'm Jim Finn. My guests this week are Francie Gorman, and Francie is running for president of the IFA, Colm Markey, MEP, and uh, Colm is going to tell us about various issues out in Europe. And my final guest this morning will be Frank O'Mara, the director of Chagas. My first guest this morning is Chris Hanrahan. And Chris is with Chagas and he's in the Nina office. Good morning, Chris, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Chris, you're going to tell us all about the autumn management of Suckler Weanlands. There is a lot of regulations around the autumn wintering. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, so at this time of the year, with the days getting they then getting shorter and the ground conditions are kind of deteriorating at the minute. Uh, the number of special number of special uh, weanland show and sales also taking place uh, around the county and, and country at the minute. Uh, many farmers, particularly suckler farmers, are turning their attention to um, weaning their springborn calves. Um, as they've been on the cows now for between six and nine months, and the cows now are contributing, you know, very little to the, the actual performance of these calves. So, this, so this morning here, I'll, I'll discuss a bit about the kind of best practices farmers can implement on their farm, pre-weaning, kind of during weaning, and, and post-weaning. Um, okay. So, firstly, we'll, we'll talk we'll talk a bit about the pre the, the, the pre-weaning. Yeah. So there's three kind of main main topics here. Uh, one is vaccinations. Next, it would be kind of um, uh, dosing and the third one will be meal feeding. So kicking off with with, with the with the vaccination program is a good code of practice really for farmers to to have as a vaccination vaccination program on the farm, um, to prevent kind of respiratory uh, diseases uh, breaking out with, within their weanlands. So the most common one being pneumonia, and this also has the biggest effect on on, on calf say mortality in this age group, and also uh, with ill thrift at this time of the year with around weaning. So I'd advise kind of farmers to discuss with their vets uh, the most useful protocol of, of, of vaccination for their farm and to make sure that they leave enough time between actually giving the product and allowing it to have an effective immunity uh, built up on uh, within the calves. Um, and this will take probably about three to four weeks out from, from, from your target weaning days. So then the next part would be um, looking at dosing. So a good core practice as well to have on, for, for a group of Wayland is to dose with a suitable um, effective uh, antigmentic uh, dose or wormer um, that targets particularly stomach worms and lung worms as calves with damaged lungs are more susceptible to viruses such as pneumonia um, and to make sure, again, you give this three to four weeks out before you before you wean to allow the lungs to develop and recover um, after their after having, we'll say, the, the, the lungworm in, inside them. And then the next part is, I'm going to discuss, is on uh, meat feeding. Yeah. So it's recommended to with the, to aid uh, with weaning um, is to introduce meal to the calves. I'd recommend a kind of palatable, palatable feed, 15-16% uh, crude protein ration. Um, ideally feed this between four and six weeks out from the time you start, you want to go weaning. Um, at a kilo, between a kilo and a kilo, and uh, two kilos a day um, for, for, for the four to six week period. Uh, so any farmer that's currently in the National Beef Welfare Scheme, um, this action is covered under, under that scheme. So farmers are, are funded there for 40 calves um, to feed them for a total of six weeks. That's four weeks before you take them off the cow and two weeks afterwards. 
and they're also um, funded there to do an IBR blood test to carry out in 20 animals within their herd and this must be completed by the first first of November by their vet and with, they can when they get the results from their vet and they can sit down with them to discuss a uh, vaccination protocol uh, that they may or may not need uh, going forward um, we're on weaning. So then the next part of the weaning process is the actual physically weaning the calves. So this is a very stressful time with them mm-hmm. on the calves because um, you're changing their, their diet first of all and you're changing their their their, their surroundings as, as well in, in most cases. So to avoid a, a stressful weaning time uh, period for these calves, uh, we'd recommend to wean uh, the calves gradually. So this is this will be done um so we'd say not to wean all the calves together mm-hmm. in, in one big loss. It would make uh, wean them over in small groups over a number of weeks, um, and also make sure you have heifers and bull calves separated from one another as well. Um, it's also highly recommended. So, so to start weaning, um, we'd say recommend weaning your your heaviest calves. So their calves that are well developed. Mm-hmm. Obviously, your their heaviest calves are up maybe. 350, 400 kilos at this stage for some of them, and also maybe calves that are on your first calf, or so they'd be slightly thinner cows as well to target weaning them first, and then leave a week to 10 days between you wean each between you each wean each group of calves, um, and that'd be taking away the calves from or the cows from the calves, leaving the calves with the main group of cow uh, stock, mm-hmm. um, and then taking numbers away every couple of weeks. Um, so you're not changing the environment drastically on the calves yeah. or, or their diet either um, and you're also still feeding them that bit of meal and make sure when you are taking the cows away that uh, the calves remain in a, a field that's well fenced so you don't have any, anyone breaking out and also that there's a good water supply um, to the field so that cause these calves would be getting meal uh, it's important to have uh, water access when, when you are feeding meal as well and you can continue that until all the calves are weaned and then make sure you're, you're grazing them on your, your best quality grass. And so usually after about two weeks, they're, they're weaned for two weeks. Most farmers will be thinking about uh, selling these calves at the various show, uh, sales around the country. Uh, but if you're not, if you're planning on holding on to them for the winter, we'd also recommend continue feeding the calves a meal at the same time each day, whether it be morning or evening, um, and also have them on the best quality grass that's available on your farm. Um, until the t- till, till it's time to put them in the shed. And when you do house them, make sure that the shed is well ventilated, that there's enough uh, space in each pin for, for, for the animals, uh, and there's good water access as well. And to feed them on good quality silage, so we'd recommend anything above 70 DMD quality silage along with two kilos a meal will achieve a target, uh, target weight gain of 0.06 of a kilo, or sorry, point six of a kilo a, a day um, over the winter and we also recommend um, maybe around December time uh, just weighing the calves again just to make sure that the, the performance is, is steady over, over the winter and that there's no we'll say, lack of performance and at this stage then you'll be able to um, counteract any 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 yield performance by maybe in, increasing the, the meal mm-hmm. um, into, into calves. And how important is it that if you do bring them in Chris uh, and you're holding on to them uh, to uh, pen them again ba- based on their weight and size. Yeah, so it's important to have uh, even groups of stock, so yeah. males together, females together, um, so that they're not uh, competing. So there's always going to be uh, um, smaller, bigger and smaller ones. So 
you want to give every, them all a fair, a fair shot. So the smaller animals might need that bit more meal, so it's better to have them together. And then you can cut back on, let's say, some meal feeding to the to the bigger animals to, to maintain that, that growth rate as well. And what about the cows said, themselves then? So with weaning cows, um, mm-hmm. as I said, we'd recommend taking them away from the calves, put them in a shed and feed them um, straw for about a week, week to 10 days. Um, this will help to reduce the, the milk the milk uh, yield of the cows to help with, help with weaning. Um, and then to make, just monitor the cows that there's no signs of um, any mastitis farming. So we'd also maybe recommend sprinkling a bit of, of of, of lime on the slats to avoid any bacteria building up. And then if there is an issue with um, mastitis in cows, maybe to treat them, uh, get on to it to, 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 to treat them for, for mastitis. And then the cows can be returned to grass after the week to 10 days um, until housing again. What about a farmer who is in organic, is an organic farmer, he won't be able to use slats. Does he have to keep a very clean bed of straw under those cows when he has when he takes the calves away from them? Uh, yeah, so we just recommend, we say, every time he's topping up with, mm-hmm. with straw to go along with, with lime to help reduce any um, bacteria that might be farming within the, within, the, within the straw bed. Can I ask you then, Chris, for your three takeaways from uh, this morning that a farmer must do? To meal feed calves uh, six weeks before before you uh, four to six weeks before you wean them to make sure that anyone that's participating in the National Beef Welfare Scheme that they complete their IBR blood test by their vet before the 1st of November and to to reduce stress um, around around uh, weaning uh, to only take away small numbers of cows from the calves and leave them with the main herd to help reduce stress and on the cats. Okay, well look, that's great. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. That listeners was Chris Hanrahan from Chagas and Chris is in the Nina office. This morning I have one of the candidates for national president and that's uh, Francie Gorman and Francie, as far as I know, is a leashman. His, I don't know, I think he straddles three counties at this stage between uh, Kilkenny, Tipperary and Leash. But anyway, Francie will tell us all about it. Good morning, Francie, and thanks very much for joining us here on Tip FM. Yeah, good morning, Jim. It's a pleasure. OK. Francie, will you tell me a little bit about yourself and your family and where you're living? I know you're on a border, but I don't really know exactly where on the border you are. So, yeah, I'm... I'm- yeah, go on. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm right down here in South in South Leash, right right uh, on the Kilkenny border. Um, we're suckler beef and cheap farmers here in Ballinakill. My father was a farmer. My my mother was a nurse. Strong family farming background here in in the parish of Ballinakill, and I'm married to a, a girl from Kilkenny, Kay O'Brien, from Callan. She'd have a lot of relations around Ballingarry, Mullinahoe. And we have a young son, son Tom, and we're farming about 130 acres of land. Would have lost two significant pieces of ground since 2013, um, you know, which we, which we weren't in a, a position to actually replace because, because of the cost of land and demand and land. And it's easy, it's easy kind of get frustrated by that and, and look at, at fellow farmers and give up. But at the end of the day, the reason for, for that demand for land, that's been driven by EU policy and government policy. And rather than giving out about your fellow farmer, I'd be looking, I'd be looking in that direction for blame for uh, policymakers. Living where you are with Kilkenny at one side of the border to you must be a great house to be in and married to a Kilkenny woman when there's a, a match in Croke Park. 
Uh, absolutely, and uh, I think since I started going out with Kenny in, in the in the in the early two thousands, I think Kenny have been in in a final or winning finals almost every year. Um, up to up to two thousand fifteen, I think, and yeah. um, uh, it was it was it was brilliant, really, to be able to go to the games and and uh, every every August September was based about <laughs> around going to matches in Dublin. And look, I'd be an avid sports fan. I love football, hurling, played rugby. Obviously, haven't done as much in the last. Uh, 10 years um, since I got really involved in IFA heavily at county level and national level but but still I'd be, I'd be, I'd be following the results and looked at the match last night you know it's great to see Ireland going well if it was uh, if I hadn't been aimed forward for, for the for presidency at the end of the year we'd probably out, be out there myself and Kane a little lad for at least one of the matches you know Ok well let's hope that uh, Ireland uh, keep up the good work <clears throat> they have been very good up to now OK, Francie, your history in the IFA. Yeah, I got involved. I suppose I was involved in Mocker first, yeah. uh, chairman of the local branch, and, and uh, I wasn't involved beyond county level. And I got involved in IFA, a local a local county chairman, Michael McAvoy, he was chairman in the Spink branch, which is the other side of the parish, got me involved. And, and I mean, right from the time I got involved in the association, I could see a value in it um, in terms of how it would give me information from my own farm, how it delivered in my own pocket. Uh, a neighbour of mine here, um, Pat Delaney, marched to Dublin in 66 as a young man and he always made the point to me that we'd never fully appreciate IFA until the day would come that there was no IFA. And that line always stuck in my head and I could see how our county chairman that went before me did a really good job. We've always had an effective count, different, but always effective county chairman here in, in, the, in the county. And I suppose when I took over from Pat Hennessy, my ambition was maybe just to not drop the ball and do it as well as he did. And, you know, I think we did a good job as county, I think I did a good job as county chairman here with help from everybody in the executive. And we, we, we got to, you know, communicate the difficulties that farmers were in. And I think we, 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 we made a difference in a really positive way. OK. Then looking at your history in the IFA, what would you say was your biggest achievement? Well, certainly um, when I was county chair, like particularly around the beef price issue, there would have been huge pressure on that here in the county. Um, Joe Healy was after been elected uh, president of IFA, and we had all that uh, you know trouble around meat factories at that time um, uh, in 2019. And like we would have had a couple of large scale beef meetings here in the county. And I think I think the achievement is that you have to be able to read the mood of farmers first and foremost. And you have to really know what, to, how they're, how they're thinking, how they're suffering, and and I have the, I believe I have that ability. I keep my feet in the ground. I'd be in touch with farmers in the ground, and I knew from uh, from going to meetings in the county how frustrated they were. And twice we would have held major beef meetings in the county, and within you know ten days we had the Collision Hotel um, in Port Leash. Full and both of them meetings helped deliver uh, schemes and, and supports for beef farmers. Similarly, I would have done it in uh, as Southchester chairman on the walkways issue, the rights of ways issue. We had a, an online meeting that that actually turned uh, government opinion on that. And they, they stopped bringing in that legislation. You know, I'd have, I'd have done the same with Buffy lads and Rewetton. Um, I tend to as Southchester chair not to run meetings myself, but if there was an issue I like re which be which would be a huge concern in County Aussie, I get the opportunity of a meeting. But it's good for the local executive that they're seen to be doing something rather than me um uh running it. So that morphed into a national meeting and, and that's the way I like to like to run my my responsibilities in IFA. You like to bring people with you. 
and it gives them a sense of buy-in and a sense of achievement. And when you get that, you have farmers coming with you. I think that's my single biggest achievement, that I, it's the way I conducted myself in my role as, as, as Lee's chairman and South Leinster chairman. And if I'm elected president of IFA, it will be uh, you know, my ambition to bring people with you. You can't, you can't push people with you. You've got to show leadership. You've got to be generous in how you deal with people and, and get them to buy in and feel that they're part of the decision-making process and that they're driving it to one. When you can achieve that, you know, there's, mm-hmm. I won't say you're, you're, you, you, what you can achieve, achieve is limitless, but you're going in the right direction. And, and I feel over the last, uh, it's going back a long time now, 20 years, mm-hmm. maybe we're losing that in IFA. We've lost confidence in our members to back us. I, I, would, I would often have heard it said, if we are, we're organising a protest, will farmers come? Farmers will always come with you if you're showing leadership, if you're prepared to go to the top of the hill with them, but not send them back down the same direction. And that's not something I'll do if I'm elected. We'll, we'll formulate policy. We have good people working for us. We can put policy together. We'll be in there early. We'll be proactive about it. And we'll put, our, we'll put our ideas forward. And look, Jim, if we're not getting action, if we're not getting the results, we've got to be prepared to take action. And, you know, I believe farmers will back you if you're doing it the right way. If farmers don't back you, we're in a bigger, we're, we're, we're in a, we're, we're in bigger trouble. But I believe the always would. And I, I'm prepared to go out in the name and show that leadership for the association and try and try and restore it back to the political powerhouse that was, uh, once was uh, delivering for farmers and delivering for farmers, uh, particularly in income, because it all comes down to income at the end of the day. Okay, can I ask you now uh, just a very short answer to this one? What are the biggest issues out there facing Irish farmers at the moment? There's no question, there's two. Right. And it's always income, it's always income, number one. And I can see a huge issue with cash flow on farms before the end of the year and into next spring. Um, dry stock, pillage farms, farmers, sheep farmers that would have depended on uh, the supports uh, for a big portion of their income are going to see a massive cut in them when they get their final checks at the end of the year. They'll be, most people will be astonished at the level of cuts that they're going to take this year and over the next three years. And on the dairy side of the house where meat prices go on and where it looks like it could be a note stabilised at the moment and the co-op should be paying Lambie Tyrone should be paying up to three cent more, dairy gold two cent more on milk at the moment. They're behind the curve in that. Um, but the pressures on milk price and, and the cuts to supports are going to, I think it's going to limit cash flow in a huge way. And look, the environmental side of the house as well, how that's going to impact on our ability to produce, particularly in the dairy side of the house again, is going to be massive. Okay, grand answer to both of those. What's your campaign promise then, Francie? I suppose it probably went through a bit of it already. Uh, My my campaign promise is 100% is to restore the belief that farmers have an IFA, that farmers want to have an IFA, to restore IFA uh, to the position as the the lead organisation in representing farmers. I think we've relinquished a little bit of that or a lot of that over the last 20 years. I want that restored. I want farmers to have belief and faith and confidence in the association to deliver for them. And, you know, I went through the points already around how I believe that can be done. And I, and, and I won't take a backward step in trying to represent farmers. And if we have to plant a flag on any issue, if it's the first one that comes across my desk as president of IFA on week one, if I don't stand up in a good way in that, and, and show farmers that I'm prepared to show a strong leadership. For me, I'd be, take, I'd be taken for granted for the next four years as president of IFA, and I'm not going to have that happen. That will not happen in my watch. Whether it's dairy, beef, retail, whatever, it'll be done 
issue by issue, and we will put the full resources of the association and the membership behind it to sort out any issue that comes away. And there's no doubt a big one, and it's kind of kicking off now, and it, it won't come to fruition for five years, are the next cap negotiations and how all that plays into the environmental uh, side of the house as well. Okay, Francie, one last question to you. Why should the IFA members vote for you? I think they vote for me because, number one, they see what the people who know me know that they see what they, they get what they, they get what they see. Um, I've shown leadership, uh, you know, at, at county executive level, at regional level in IFA, at council level when I was up there, I have an opinion on everything. Even if I'm the only opinion in the room, I won't be afraid to voice it. And sometimes that's a, that's a, that's an issue in IFA that maybe we're, we're, we're afraid to stand up and give her opinion. But we were brought up in a household that, you know, we believed we were brought up to stand up for ourselves, have an opinion in, in an inoffensive way and not try and offend people and stand up for yourself. And I stand up for farmers, irrespective of what sector they come from, whether they're dairy, beef or sheep, or, or tillage, or, or the lads in the heart sector, piece of poultry, whoever it is, I'll stand up for them the same as I'd stand up for this on anything. And I give that strong leadership. I'm ambitious. I'm not going to set the bar low. I'll set the bar high in terms of achievement, and I won't be afraid to do that in case we don't achieve it. You've got to, you've got to have a level of ambition and vision about how you want, where you see I in five years' time. And if I don't jump that bar, Jim, it won't be for the want of trying. I think that's the most important thing. OK, well, look at Francie. Thanks very much for joining me this morning and telling me all about yourself and your campaign. And we wish you the best of luck. That listeners was Francie Gorman, who is one of the candidates for president of the IFA. If, having heard Francie talking to me this morning, you think he's the man to vote for, well then go out and vote for Francie. Uh, listen, my next guest is Colin Markey, uh, MEP. Colin, it's a while since you and I had a chat. How are things going in Europe? They're very busy. It's, a, it's extremely eventful times in Europe, as everybody knows, between a war in Ukraine, a, a, I suppose the fallout of COVID, and we've had Brexit to deal with as well. So really, and then the, the, if you like, the cost of living crisis is impacting everyone across Europe too. So there's just so much going on at the moment. I suppose the backdrop to all of that is the fact that we are in the, the whole green transition as well, which is, if you like, an enormous investment by the EU, 1.3 trillion, or 1.8 trillion euros investment in, in a green transition across all of Europe, across all sectors, be it transport, uh, housing, uh, agriculture, across pretty much everything that we do, uh, the energy system, that we, we, we transition away from the dependency on fossil fuels and move across to a, a more green economy. And tell me this, talking about this transition, you know, is it going, you know, from the public's perception of it, is that it's going too fast, that we've been asked to go too fast to to transition very, very quickly instead of maybe, say, a little bit slower? Well, I think uh, certainly from my own perspective, I would have a frustration about, if you like, a big part of what we've done in the last number of years is set very ambitious targets and then maybe not put the systems behind to deliver on those targets. 
and then people are, are frustrated because they feel the, the responsibility has been put on them to achieve, let's say, um, a 50 pence reduction in a particular, be it uh, a dependency on fossil fuels or not. And that, and that is, if you like, there, there is no particular plan to make that happen. I think that's where we have to get better on is the implementation piece. The, the ambition is there, but the delivery is another challenge. And I think certainly people are frustrated on one side that we're not achieving the delivery and on the other side in terms of people find it hard to get there and I suppose I find the hard change is difficult because there is no roadmap and there is no direction. I think in fairness that's where the local development network can, can come into play too because it's, it's managing that change and it's engaging with communities on the ground and with that level of um, engagement on the ground I think it can play a big part in terms of bringing people on a journey. It's change for people and people can be slow to change and I suppose if they, but if they see a way they'll buy into that. Right, now coming back to COVID and how, you know, the European Union dealt with it, uh, you know, are, are you having any kickback because some of the, uh, we'd say some of the things you asked uh, citizens to do uh, hasn't worked or did, didn't work? I think, I think in fairness, when you look back at what was achieved over the couple of years of COVID, when you had the rollout of vaccines and the level of people that, that were, if you like, protected through, through, through the, the development force and then the rollout of the, vac- the vaccines, I think it's been very positive. But I think on the overall, the, like the, the level of isolation that people would have experienced through COVID, I think that, that still hasn't gone away. I was talking to a lady recently who had, was a regular supporter, had a season ticket, uh, going to um, follow the League of Ireland soccer team. And since COVID, she's never gone back. And she said, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable going back. And that's frightening to think. This is a woman in her early 70s and perfectly mobile, perfectly fit. But she just is nervous about going back out and engaging in things she was at previously. And I think that story is replicated around the country. People have, if you like, got out of the habit of doing things and become more isolated in themselves. And I think we have to make a special effort to encourage people to, to engage in our community and uh, re- reconnect with their friends because people still aren't doing that as much as they used. Yeah, and one of the real positives that came out of COVID was the acceleration of the digital to be able to converse digital and, uh, you know, IT just accelerated and we can do all kinds of things from home now that we couldn't do. Well, we probably could do them, but we didn't realise it. And I think that COVID has taught us about how much technology has moved on the last 10 or 15 years in terms of, let's say, particularly Zoom and uh, other uh, teams or whatever whatever version you like to use. That's one thing. But even the the access to broadband, uh, the ability to to watch things online or to engage with people online, it's, it's been a real... It's made the world a smaller place in terms of accessibility and I suppose they, they, I just, we just left I was just up with the National Broadband Plan people there yeah. 10 minutes ago and we are just talking about the amount of the, the rollout of that the, the ambition is to hit 500,000 houses they're, they're connecting a, well they're making network available to 10,000 houses a month and currently connecting 5,000 houses a month as well to the network so that's enormous progress and hopefully that is the, the link that will make the technology we've all discovered through COVID real for everybody Right and of course uh, it's great we got something out of it. The other big issue in Europe at the moment and of course we're uh, bearing the blunt of it here in Ireland as well and that's the uh, war in Ukraine 
Yes, the war in Ukraine has been really challenging for the last few years. I think if you if you look at it from the context of being here in Ireland, it's certainly an issue. But if you talk to someone that's from an Eastern European country that maybe was previously part of the, the we say the USSR back in the 80s, like for them it's a real and present danger because for them. They, they see this as a road back to what they, they got away from. And people talk about war fatigue. Well, I can assure you there's no war fatigue in places like Latvia or Lithuania or, or Romania. They're very concerned with this situation. And then when you add to that, I suppose, the whole scenario of the, the impact on food and the, the whole, if you like, the... the the, the grain from Ukraine and the grain from Russia, that, which would have fed many parts of the world, is not as available as it was, and that's having a knock-on impact in terms of food security and potentially famine into the future, and that, that's a real concern as well. And do you see, with all the measures that Europe has been doing, that we would see a reduction possibly in the retail price of food uh, in the near future? I think the reality is it's going to take time because I suppose people have realised that if you like that one of the main things that underpins the price of fuel is the, uh, food is the price of energy and the price of energy is while it's come down a bit it's, it's actually turned the corner and started to creep up again so the, the worry is that the, like fertiliser is made from oil if you like so a lot of the input costs and indeed the, the, the the industry running the food processing takes takes energy as well so the energy cost is feeding into cost of, of, of food and that's a real concern but on top of that is the availability of, of the like of the amount of grain that was taken out of we'll say Ukraine and Russia like approximately a third of the, the, the wheat of the world came from Ukraine and Russia and when you impact when you think of what that is what impact that has not for that to be be, be put at risk, if you like. Uh, and so I, I think we are facing a situation where increased food prices going forward for, for a time to come. And I think it also brings into focus the whole concept of food security, which we've probably taken, taken for granted for the last 20 years, I suppose, on the back of a, a very effective cap system we've had across Europe. Right. Well, after speaking about the two big issues in Europe for the past three years at this stage, uh, local development companies here in Ireland have played a big role in both of those. And I know you're a great supporter of local development companies. Would you be happy what has happened here in Ireland? I think the, the Irish response to COVID has been enormous. I think the local development companies are typical of, of the Irish response, whether it be football clubs or local development companies or community as a whole. The community response in Ireland to support everybody in the community has been very positive. I think the local development companies work very well in Ireland because the Irish are good at doing community. And if you do community well, then you do local development well. And I think certainly... I just to say, at a European level, it's well recognised the importance of local development companies and that bottom-up approach, as they refer to it as, that you get in on the ground and it's the ordinary people that take ownership of the projects or the businesses or whatever, wherever you're looking to support. And it's with their heart and spirit that, number one, they know what's needed and, number two, it's their drive that makes it happen. And all the money in the world that you'd give to a, a, a local authority in terms of county council or that, 
it won't be spent half as well as if you give it to the people on the ground who want to make the change happen and any little bit of money they get to help make that change happen they'll multiply it by 10 and that's in, in terms of effort in terms of matching funding in terms of under, understanding and getting value for money in the spend they'll just um, they, 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 in every way that they'll make that money go further and I think that's the beauty of local development and that's why we have to support it here in Ireland OK Colin look thanks very much for having a chat with us that listeners was Colin Markey MEP and I believe you'll be on hopefully on an election trail this time next year well, the election trail, well, the, the date for the election, we're told, is the 7th of June next year. So it's a, it's, a, it's a big constituency, and I suppose it's a constituency that I wouldn't be used to dealing with something that size. You essentially a million people in thir- across 13 counties. So it's a big challenge. So anything that can get the name out there. I think, to be honest, I think my interests align with the interests of people of rural Ireland. So I think we have to make sure that that, that isn't forgotten and that, that the spirit and the, the, the essence of what is, it, it is to be rural Ireland is, is something I want to champion. Well, we in Tipperary will support you, but we, unfortunately we won't be able to give you a vote. Well, sure, as I say, if you, if you can't vote for me, you can find five others who can instead. Thanks very much, Colin. Thanks Thank very, very much. much. My yearly chat with the director of Chagas, I, I always have one at uh, Ploughing, and I spoke to the previous director, and I now have the current director, whom I spoke to this time last year, virtually in the same spot as I am now standing, and that is our own Frank O'Mara from San Mel. And we're going to have a chat about how uh, things have gone in the past year. Frank, you're welcome. Thanks very much, Jim. And just to be a little bit more precise, it's Lisrona Clanmel is, is where I came from. But um, look, delighted to be here with you. As you said, we're more or less in the same spot as we were this time last year. But what a lot has changed in that time. Very different year for, for farming. You know, we had a pretty good year in 2022. Uh, okay, input prices went up a lot, but, you know, prices for grain, for, for milk in particular, uh, were, were very good and um, not too bad for, for dry stock. Pigmen, all right, were having a bad year last year. And this year, we've seen the high input prices kind of continue. We've seen the price of milk drop a lot, the price of grain dropping a lot. And, um, you know, I suppose, but the big thing also has been the weather. It's been a very tricky year weather-wise, in particular for, for tillage farmers, but, but for all farmers, really. So, you know, a very, very different year. But still, look, I think, you know, t- going around here, farmers, they're a tough bunch. And, you know, they're... they're um, you know they've they've had to roll with the blows, but you know they're they're not disillusioned and uh, you know very determined to continue on in their business of producing food. You're talking about they having to roll. Now they have a lot of rolling to do with uh, all the information that's coming out from the science at the moment, and they're going to have to take an awful lot of that on board. Yeah, look, it's been a um, a, a busy year. I, I suppose inside in the farm office, it has yeah. been a busy year as well because the whole payment system changed we went from um, we went to the new BIS and uh, all that went along with that so you know a lot more I suppose any new system is different and, and, and that so there's a lot of learning in that but you know we, we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks the whole nitrates area coming along and um, the implications that will have for, for dairy farmers and derogation and also the possible spillover into other sectors if, if, if dairy farmers need to try and find extra land to pull down their, their stocking rates so um so yeah, the, and, and of course climate change not not gone away. Obviously, in the targets on that there for the farming uh, sector. So um, lots of of uh, areas of policy, you know, in, in impacting significantly on on agriculture as we speak. Now I must compliment your advisory service. Uh, they have an awful lot to contend with, filling forms for farmers. 
you know, it's ridiculous the number of applications that farmers had to make in 2023. Yeah, and thanks for the, the compliment from them. They work really hard and, you know, we've, we have a lot of a lot of farmer clients and we, we support them, not just in the in the schemes, but also in, in the technical aspects of their business. And yes, there's there's been a lot of, uh, we call it paperwork this year, as I just mentioned a minute ago, the change over to the BIS has added a lot more complexity. So the, the consultations with farmers there were, were, you know, took a bit longer. And obviously our advisors had to spend a lot of time getting up to speed with that scheme. We had the acre scheme introduced last year and we had lots of other schemes that have been introduced along the way. We think about the fodder scheme introduced last year, the, the tillage incentive scheme. And look, while they, they certainly had paperwork and it does keep our advisors uh, busy in the office when they'd like maybe to be out in the field, I suppose those schemes are very important as income sources for farmers and they all have a, a purpose and, and they're all, I suppose, putting some some additional badly needed funding uh, in, into tillage farmers and or indeed all farmers, you know. So um, it's important work that they do and, uh, you know, they are very dedicated and, and yeah, we'd, I suppose we'd love to be able to do maybe more work out in the, the field as well and, and um, that's something we're, we're looking at, how we can ensure we, we continue to offer a, a strong technical service to farmers, not just the, the, the support and schemes. You quite rightly don't know where I live, but every time time I go into the town of Thorless, I have to pass your office. And I can tell you something, Frank. Your guys are in there working at night time. Oh, absolutely. Trying to fill those farms. Yeah, yeah. It used to be the way for our our advisors. There was a busy period coming up to the area aid or the single farm payment. Now, now the base. And uh, that's still the case. That's a very busy two months in advance of that. But we, we go from that then to, to some other scheme. And you know what I mean? It seems to be a, a year-round a year um, yeah. deadline now. You know, there's always a deadline in front of us. And, and obviously, as with any, any scheme with a closing date, you know, as you approach that closing date, there's a lot to be done. And um, you'd love to get it all done earlier. But the human nature tends to leave things to the last minute or the last hour anyway so you know we'd be hoping our farmers always can give us the information in a timely fashion and many of them do and we'd encourage all of them to get in early and 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 you know have their meeting with their their advisors so we can get things done in a streamlined way as possible yeah and i want to thank you too particularly for the your two managers the one in uh, Tipperary and uh, whoever is managing care, uh, Claire, I think is Pat Clark, is it? That's right, Pat Clark. Uh, yeah. They give me an advisor every single week. Very good. Me, so we have yeah, yeah. Uh, two on radio every week and the guys are great and they come on and they give the information that uh, farmers need. So they want to be, I'd want to compliment them on that yeah, as well. Yeah. And they're very informative. Absolutely. Look, and, and that's a great channel for us to actually, you know, talk about the, the issues of the day. Uh, to an audience of farmers at a time that farmers might be relaxed and listening to to, to, to the radio. So look, we're very uh, glad to get that opportunity. You know, it's all part of our knowledge transfer activities and we see the the local media, whether it's the print or, or the, the radio, has been a, a very useful and important channel with which we can communicate with our clients and indeed with all farmers, not just people who might have a client relationship with us, but you know, we, we're here as a public good organisation and our information is and should be available to all farmers and the radio, our website's another way we get it out to people, but the radio is a very, very useful uh, way, way to do that. Yeah, and maybe I'm getting old, but you seem to have a lot of new, young people coming on radio with me. Yeah, that's right. They're getting time like you. I'm getting a bit older, so they're getting younger every year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have recruited a lot of new staff in, in the last couple of years. And uh, that's great. You know, they, they bring a lot of energy, a lot of new ideas um, and a lot of enthusiasm uh, to, to the job. And, um, 
yes, they, it takes a few years to get up to the, the speed of a more seasoned advisor and, you know, to know all the ins and outs of things. But look, you know, we need turnover. You, you always need new blood in an organisation and we've been very lucky to be able to recruit so many good, talented young people over the last few years. Now let me ask you, which is the one thing that I love that you're doing, and that's all the research and the amount of research that you're doing, yeah. whether that's for the farmer or whether that's for the processor. You are doing a lot of research. We are. Look, we've a, we've a big research program that mm. deals with every aspect of food, from starting with the soil that grows either the grass or the crop, you know, and then the, the how to grow that grass or that crop best through to the animal that might eat it and through, as you say, to the, the food processing sector, how can we get maximum value out of those crops or animal products so that, you know, the, the processors can return a better price to the farmer but also provide a better product to the consumer. And in the end of the day, farming is about producing something that somebody needs to buy. So we have to keep the consumer in mind always in, in our in our, um, in our our businesses. And uh, our research spans, spans right right through that um, that chain of, of, of food production. Frank, from all the research that you are doing, uh, do you feel that we will meet our targets for 2030? Look, the targets for 2030 for climate is a 25% reduction in our emissions. It is a really challenging target. I suppose we think that there, the pathway is there for us to reach it through, you know, use of technologies and, and improving systems on farms and, you know, making things more, more efficient and technologies like our protected urea or using clover to reduce nitrogen and, and so on. So, yes, look, we think the posi- it, it's possible to do. Obviously, it requires farmers to, to adopt a lot of new technology and change things and uh, our advisors are working with farmers on that. You know, we have a, a program that we call the Signpost Program. It's signposting farmers to a, a low carbon way of farming and um, we're working hard with, with, with farmers but also working with the co-ops and the meat processors and others as partners to um, to, to support farmers to make those changes and, and look I think there are changes that when farmers get down to grips with them you know they're, they're happy enough to, to take them on board because most of them are actually you know they're maybe cost positive they, 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 they'll save you money or make you a bit more money so we're not asking farmers to, to take on things that will cost uh, money or affect their bottom line so, so farmers I think by and large we find are very much up for it and willing to do their bit OK, well, look, at, thanks very much for having a chat with me. Hopefully the two of us will meet again. Please, this God. T- this time next Please year. Please, God, yeah. Uh, wherever this ploughing is going to be, and there might be less muck under our so Hopefully, as I was saying to someone, there's a lot, a lot of muck here and not much money. Hopefully there'll be less muck <laughs> and more money next year. Well well said, Frank. That listener was Frank O'Hara, the director of Chagas. That, listeners, is Agriport for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and that you will join me at the same time next week. Coming up next is the news at 10 o'clock and after that, Eamon DeWire presents Down Your Way.